0: Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life, who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, Lit that Matters. Thank you for joining us on the second episode of the Lit Matters podcast. I'm overwhelmed by the support and positive feedback from our first episode. If you haven't listened to the Moby Dick episode, please go back, download it, subscribe to the show, leave a review, suggest any books for future episodes as well. For today's show, we, we leave the seas and blast off to other worlds and other dimensions to discuss Samuel R. Delaney's 1984 sci-fi masterpiece, Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand. We are joined by Paco Brito Nunez. He's a professor of American literature and English at Orange Coast College. Paco, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, fantastic to have you here. Skipping all the small talk here. Let's get right to it. I'm sure you want to go enjoy your spring break. You have a stack of papers just calling your name there. So let's let's get right to it. Paco, have you always been a reader? Have you always been a lover of stories, of books? What is your origin story as a reader? Yeah, um, I think I
1: always have loved them. Um, I think I probably use them a little bit as a social crutch or a social shield when I was a kid. I um, I moved from South America when I was 10 years old and I remember just in grade school and high school always having a book with me like always reading. I liked it innately because I did love stories but it always gave me an excuse to sort of not look at people in the face and I've, I've grown a lot. I'm not as you know socially anxious as I once was but um yeah I love books for that and I remember when I was sort of middle school age, I read a lot of science fiction, actually, I read Star Wars novelizations, just anything I could get my hands on. And going into high school, my dad actually kind of shamed me out of that. He sort of said, you should be reading real literature. And I I took that to heart. And I started reading the classics. Um, And that became sort of my thing. Um, I went from a you know, a, a good but not elite high school to a very elite college. And I, when I got there, I thought like, this is my thing, I've read the books that my classmates who I'm terrified of will have read. And and then it turned out that they hadn't read those books. But so all of this is sort of, I guess that's <laughs> the, the sociology of, of um, how I did literature, but I do really love it sort of intrinsically. And I have, it was late in college, I started reading science fiction again, and now I read a
0: little bit of everything, including science fiction. It is funny how these books, you know, we, they serve as a protector for us. I, again, I, I go back to, to to a very young version of me. I remember sitting in the dugout playing baseball, holding a book in my hand, and having a coach just ridicule me, like, "You can't be reading; it's time for base for baseball." And and I, like you, it's it's funny. I didn't have someone to direct me to what the classics happened to be. I was reading. John Carter of Mars and Tarzan and things like that. And I thought they were the classics. Like I I had no way of knowing what was good and what was bad. I just knew it took me to a different world than I was in. And I loved that. And it certainly served that purpose as as well. Um, Well, you know, you've talked a little bit about your sort of love of science fiction as well, too. I'm curious, you know, science fiction doesn't always get the respect, you know, amongst the sort of established literary community. But it has such passionate fans. Why do you think this is? I mean, can science fiction speak more truly to our world than other more celebrated genres?
1: I think it can. And as you say, there is this sort of long-running argument, this sniping back and forth between literary fiction, right? Which is, in its own way, I think a kind of genre that considers itself to not be a genre, right? It is literature with a capital L and and everything else is a genre, but it is, you know, it has its own codes. Um, And then there are genres like fantasy and horror and romance and science fiction. And I think there's a reason for that, right? There's sort of a class reason. There's a gendered reason for that, right? It's literature is, you know, comes, it's, it's sort of the literature of the bourgeoisie and it's, it's culturally hegemonic. And, and I do think I'm kind of with, Samuel Delaney, whom we're talking about today, on this, in which, in the sense that I really don't think science fiction should be integrated. I think, you know, he's not an assimilationist in a lot of ways, and um, he talks about paraliterature, right? Paraliterature is the category for things like science fiction, like horror, like comic books, like pornography, all of which he's written um, as occurring sort of separate, and that marginalization is actually part of its history. And I really agree with him that sort of trying to fold science fiction into literature proper would be forgetting that history, right? He actually makes the explicit analogy to the integration of like racial and sexual minorities, and how you know colorblindness is not a particularly good policy because you're losing sight of um, the real histories of these things. So I like his sense of science fiction as paraliterature. At the same time, I do think that it does speak to our world better and that I really do kind of resent, I guess, um, the idea that um, the only realism, the only literature that faces our world squarely is literary fiction or realistic fiction, because I think science fiction does that and can do some things that literary fiction can't. But I also think that You know, on the other hand, there are science fiction fans and fantasy fans, genre fans, who then hold all the other stuff in contempt, the the literature in contempt, right? That it's just about, you know, white people having affairs. And I do think that there's a lot of valuable literary fiction. I think the bigger category, the bigger division cuts across this. And I think there are books that really sort of face our reality, our real world in the face. Some of them do that by having settings in outer space. Some of them do it by trying to get at the psychological reality of our world. um, And that both, I think the majority of literary fiction books and the majority of science fiction books don't actually do that, right? They don't, they're actually too scared or too thoughtless in the reproduction of how we see the world. Um, So I think good literature can be science fiction. It can be literary fiction, it could be both. We should read both and try to understand both. But I do see that there's always this struggle between the two camps.
0: Well, I was going to ask you probably a, a very petty question of, you know, are you Star Wars or Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica, like where it fits in? But I'm, I'm curious what science fiction novels other than Delaney do you recommend that you would say to a reader, like, this is one you really need to read, this is one that's transformative, this is one that, you know, could impact your life that has this value? of both a literary and a sort of a a genre aspect, what are some that you'd recommend just, you know, let me write these down as well too. So our, you know, our listeners can take notes would give us your top five. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) That's an exciting question. Uh,
1: Maybe the first one that comes to mind, a book I really love is called Woman at the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. It's, it's a book that comes out in the seventies, about 10 years before Delaney's. And it's a book, that is both brutally realistic. It's about a very sort of poor Chicana woman who might be schizophrenic, might be having dissociating from reality, um, or she might be getting visitors from a kind of utopian sort of post-capitalist future. And the book sort of goes back and forth between that future, that kind of utopian future, this kind of agrarian feminist future, And it has one amazing moment in which there's also an alternative future that is kind of a forerunner of cyberpunk dystopia. But it's also very much about being in a mental institution and what happens to this character, Connie Ramos. So that book is amazing because it's both sort of deeply realistic and sort of facing that and it has this amazing sort of utopian future. I really think it's a classic. I really, I'm looking forward to teaching it someday. It's a tough book because it's really, really dark. Um, but it also has that kind of amazing and I guess we'll go too far if I keep on thinking about all the science fiction books I one would recommend but other you know an- another classic of the genre is is Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed a book An Ambiguous Utopia right that's the the subtitle that she added afterwards and which actually Delaney's a dissenting voice he doesn't like the book too much but I think it's really great right it's it's It sort of takes capitalism square on. It has, you have this kind of anarcho-communist moon that's been independent of the capitalist planet for about 200 years. And through the story of this exceptional individual, Shebek, sort of traveling to the capitalist moon, and you really get to see both sides. And it's it's such a thoroughly imagined idea of living outside of the capitalist mode of production. I think there's something really amazing about that. Um, It's very different from Delaney's Vision of it, but um, that was a book I read a couple of times and didn't really get it. And then it just really clicked for me. And I, I really love it. I think those, so Piercy and Le Guin, th- these are two sort of utopian novels from the 70s, um, kind of forerunners. They're all sort of in dialogue um, in that same
0: conversation that Delaney's a part of, too. Wow, I, I think if uh, I keep taking this list from you, you're going to to take away all of my zeal to grade any papers this spring break and, and go straight to the library to pick these books up as well. Too I can't wait. And I do love Le Gwen. Uh Left Hand of Darkness is one of the greatest novels. It's one of my favorites. Just absolutely brilliant. Um well, let's let's take this moment then to turn to to Delaney because that's what you're going to talk about today. So so before we sort of dig further into it. Can you give us sort of that basic, no spoilers, least you need to know about stars in my pocket, like grains of sand for a reader. And by the way, I I wish you good luck with this because the sci-fi is always so intricate to explain this. Just what do we need to know the basics of the novel to get us started? Sure.
1: I mean, I think it's almost among people who take this book to heart. It's almost a cliche to say this, but it's maybe the most fully imagined attempt to really draw a galactic-scale civilization in science fiction, right? It's a it's, it's similar idea to uh, Star Wars, maybe. There's a whole galaxy. But what if we took that really seriously and looked at how diverse that would actually be? All the different kinds of... All the difference that you would see across these worlds, right? I think it's it's got this amazing... I mean, that title, right? Stars in My Pocket, it's playing with the sublime... Um, The very small, the grains of sand and then the stars. Um, So that's the setting. Um, I think in terms of the plot, and to give a little bit, I think you have to talk a little bit about the plot. And it's also a slave narrative in a way. It begins with a character who is enslaved on the first page of the book. And so he's the lowest of the low in what's really a backwater, right? Sort of worse than Tatooine, type backwater to this galactic civilization um, and he ends up surviving. The, the whole prologue of the book called A World Apart is set on this world and sort of every the ways that he's brutalized in this one encounter he's able to sort of read and he's got this amazing I won't sort of spoil more of it but there is a moment of liberation that he has this sort of brief short live liberation that he has um, but at the end of the prologue the world is destroyed, like the planet is destroyed under mysterious circumstances. And that carries over to the rest of the novel, which is narrated by a very different character named Mark Deeth. Rat Korga is the name of the, the character at the beginning. Um, and so he's he's a slave, right? He's the lowest of the lobe. He becomes the sole survivor of this planet. And in the second half of the novel, we meet this character, Mark Deeth, who's kind of from an aristocratic, quite advanced world in which, you know, human or a human-like race lives with a non-human race of sort of giant insects or lizards called the Velmi. Um, and they live in this kind of amazing harmony, at least in the part of the world where Mark comes from. And I mean, the plot of the novel is really sort of Mark Death, who's an industrial diplomat is his title, right? It it means he he takes cargo across the galaxy and he's in charge of basically translating and introducing people to this world. So he's a perfect narrator that allows Delaney to sort of explain the cultures and the mores of this galaxy um, so well. And it really is about how these, I mean, it's a love story in a way, it's between the love story between these two men, between Rat Corga and Mark Deeth. I'm calling them men in the book, they're called women. And there's an interesting sort of play with gender identity and sort of the the language, you know, the lingua franca of the civilization takes the pronoun, um, the pronouns, he, him, his, are really reserved just for the objects of erotic interest of women. And women is the the largest category. So all, not just all humans, but all species that we treat with dignity, the dignity that people have are women and are, are she, right? Which is really sort of fascinating. So it's about these two women whom we would call in our own backwards world of earth, whom we would call men and their love story. I won't say more about how it develops exactly, but it is amazing. So Ratkorga is the lowest of the low. Mark Dith comes from a very aristocratic family, and it's about the interaction between the two. And the destruction of Ratkorga's home world of Rhiannon is handled in such an incredible way. And I think it's one of the things that really sets this book apart from something like Star Wars, right? In Star Wars, you see the destruction of the planet Alderaan. And it's very sad for Princess Leia, but it's kind of one plot point in that big story in the fight against the empire. In this book, everything is shattered. Like the entire galaxy is sort of thrown off kilter slightly by the destruction of one planet among so many. And I think one of the things Delaney is doing really beautifully, right, is talking about how Rat has lost the world. There are amazing analogies between worlds and individuals. And one of the things that the novel, I think, does so beautifully is saying the billions of people who died on that planet, but even one of them dying would be losing a world and how terrible that is. And every person that is lost is the loss of a world. I think the novel explores that in a really fascinating. So I won't give more away of the plot about the coming together of Mark and Rat, Um those
0: are the basics i guess well i'm glad i didn't ask you the star wars star trek question i think i know now uh we're 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 team star wars and i i like that uh certainly it was one of the first sci-fi adventures i think i i dove into as a as a child just head on completely um i'm I'm curious what was delaney doing like what do we know about delaney when we wrote this book this is this book's from 1984 is that right i mean how does it sort of fit into what was going on then and how he composed this Yeah,
1: so this Delaney's career can probably sort of be split into two halves. There's kind of the science fiction half where he's really writing within the genre. And just to give a little bit of background about him, um, for your listeners, it's important to know he's, he's from Harlem, um, comes from an upper middle class black family in Harlem. um, And he is and a voracious reader of all kinds of literature. You know, He talks about how he read classics of literature, he read science fiction, that it was actually the science fiction that he had the strongest emotional reactions to, um, but he always read the classics and he's always written about the two of them, right? And he's got, as I mentioned earlier, this conception that they do different things, right? There's paraliterature, and there's literature. We should get something out of both, but we shouldn't reduce one to the other or try to put them together. Um, when he's very young, so he's he's also an autodidact and somebody with a, a very intense learning disability, he's very heavily dyslexic, which is really interesting. So he has one semester of college and he drops out and he starts publishing novels, publishing science fiction novels. He's he's a prodigy. He writes a few in, in sort of in the 60s and the 70s, and he's one of the, you know, only important Black writers and also one of the only important queer writers. He's he's gay. And that was kind of an open secret in, in the community. But in the 70s, he sort of starts to explore sides of his identity head on. They're always there in the early novels, which are a lot of which are space operas or these fantastic, have these fantastic settings. Um, there's always meditations on on sexuality and on race. Um, But they really come to the fore in the 70s. He publishes this really big book called Dahlgren, which was a big bestseller, but is incredibly divisive because it's it's not really science fiction in a conventional sense. It seems to be taking place in this sort of collapsing Midwest city. It's kind of dystopian. That place is falling apart. And they're really questions of sort of race and sex. It's a very sexually explicit book. It's, I mean, it has a lot more in common with something like Ulysses. you know. It's, we were talking about the debate between literature and science fiction. This put off a lot of the science fiction readers. And after Dahlgren, it was kind of, I think it was kind of a liberating moment, uh, Delaney goes off and does his own thing. So in the 80s, when he publishes this book, he publishes this, this incredible series, this quartet of novels, not novels, this quartet of fictions um, called the Return to Neverion series. It's composed of 12 different parts, or 11 different parts, some of which are as short as a long short story, one of which is a complete like 400 page novel, and they are sort of amazing revisions of the fantasy genre. So they take place in a kind of world that's kind of medieval. It has dragons. It's sort of on the verge of also entering something like capitalism, and it's just fantastic because it's, if you think of the fantasy epic, um, it's not a fantasy epic that focuses on the likes of Jon Snow or Aragorn or any of that, right? It's, it's there's a main character who's, who's sort of a slave who leads a slave revolt. And then you've got all these people, these weirdos who are sort of on the margins of it. A lot of them are slaves, a lot of people. And so he constructs this entire amazing sort of fantasy epic that doesn't really have the heroic kind of, main story to it. It's all about the margins. And one thing that's really wonderful about that series of books is that the very first story, The Tale of Gorgic, which is this novella length book story published in the first volume, Tales of Tverian, uh, Delaney reprints it word for word as the 12th part. So if you read the four books in order, you read the exact same novella at the beginning, and you read the exact same novella word for word after you read 10 others. And it is a completely different reading experience. And it's mind blowing. I remember, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, when I was reading these books for the first time, I was thinking, I'm just gonna skip when I get to the last one, right? I've just, especially cause I read them in a row. I thought I'll remember it well enough. I don't need to reread it. I have other stuff, other books by Delaney even that I wanna get to read. But I started, re- you know, I started reading that novella, and it's a completely different book because every sort of minor thing that you didn't know exactly what was going on in, in that world building is suddenly incredibly rich, and you know who these people are, and you know sort of the layout of the world, and sort of that's an amazing book. That's that was the bulk of his writing in the in the '80s. The other sort of big book that he does. Well, one of the other big books that he does is this one, Stars in My Pocket, which is kind of his farewell to space. Um, later on, he would write other books, including an amazing book called Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, that is about, it's a gay love story that sort of extends decades into the 21st century. And it is science fictional, things happen in the future. He, he thinks so, you know, so carefully about how our lives would change with technology in the future. Uh, but this is the last book of his that's really kind of a space opera that's set on other planets. and, ex- and He actually wrote it as part of a diptych. He he was going to, and I think even conceived of a sequel to it that never came and is never going to come. And, that you know, part of me would love to read another book in this world and see where he wanted to take the story. But it's such an amazing gift that we have this book at all that, um, you know, I can't resent that at all. So he wrote it. He wrote that contemporaneous with the Navarion books. He was deconstructing the fantasy genre. He's sort of deconstructing the space opera genre as well in Stars in My Pocket. And it is a utopian book in some ways, right? It has these dystopian elements, the slave society that I mentioned, right, in that first, in the prologue of the book. But it also has all of these utopian elements and believe that we should live more like of people of Velm do in a lot of ways. And I think it's it's touching that it, this comes out in the 80s when really, you know, Margaret Thatcher's slogan, there is no alternative, right? There's there's really no alternative to sort of capitalist individualism and just sort of we have to live in a particular way that was really consolidating even more. You know, in the 70s, you've got the the, the utopias of Le Guin and Piercy. These, you know, they really come as, this kind of hegemonic neoliberal ideology that was sort of taking over, there are these kind of last gap books and the se- gasp books in the 70s. And I think there's just something heroic to me about Delaney really trying to imagine what another world would look like when everything in the culture of advanced societies is saying that there, there can be no alternative. We have to live the way that we do. So, in terms of the larger context of coming back to your question in a very roundabout way. I think that's going on in the 80s. And he's, I think he's writing against it in this book. He's writing against it in the Navarion series. He's writing against it in books like The Madman, these books that he, you could call them erotica. He likes to call them pornography. They're incredibly sexually explicit. And he's really sort of dealing with his sexuality and lots of forms of transgression. They're, it's an amazing series of books. I, I thought that I'd read enough transgressive, literature that I couldn't be shocked, but reading uh, Delaney's books about sex and all the different forms of sex, you know, they really are mind expanding. They sort of show you ways of living and kinds of pleasure that you might not know that are out there. And, you know, I think this is his project. That's the project of of the second half of his career, which is ongoing. I mean, some of these books are quite off-putting. He's kind of self-publishing them now, republished them with small presses. This book is published by Wesleyan University Press, right? It doesn't come out with, it's not put out by Tor, or one of the big publishing houses. He sort of deliberately goes with the smaller university imprint, which I like. And just to come back to his career, there there really is you know, a large group of people within science fiction and fantasy who just really value him for his books, his pre Dahlgren books is like science fiction, classically science fiction books, and don't quite know what to do with these weird books that come later. Um, I love those early books. But I think the most amazing things he ever did are, you know,
0: in the 80s and on
1: books like this one.
0: I think it's so fascinating that you, you said your father looked at the, the earliest novelization of star wars and said pick up something better and so what what did you do years later pick up the interest you know the how, these intricate novels and, and having read the, the star wars novelizations george lucas like they're operating at the same time was there any chance that they ever crossed paths because i think lucas was so bound by what he could print it was a safety to what star wars was even as groundbreaking as it was compared to this it'd be interesting if they cross paths at all. Do you have any record of, of the two of them sitting in a room chatting about uh, the way they envision worlds?
1: I doubt it. Delaney, has, <laughs> Delaney did review Star Wars when it came out in 1977. It was quite a negative review of it. And um, yeah, they th- those books, you know, the Star Wars galaxy and the galaxy and stars in my pocket, I think they're superficially similar. Right. But, I think they're completely different. I also, you know, this book is doing something completely different. This is, you know, what I was describing about Alderaan, this is taking these things seriously in a way that Star Wars is good for what it is. But like you were saying, the constraints that Lucas or anybody has in making those right, he's making these boundary pushing books because he's producing them out of his own imagination. I think Star Wars Part of the reason I'm not interested in in it anymore is it's it's a Disney product. It really is being sold to as many people as possible to please as many people as possible and really sort of needs to appeal to not the lowest sort of lower common denominators of various kinds. It can't push boundaries, right? You're not gonna get a critique of our way of life um, from the biggest entertainment conglomerate in the world who's now pushing the Star Wars books. Um, In some ways, yeah, you couldn't get farther from Delaney than Star Wars, right? I think this, this is really radical art versus art that has its purposes. It can be very enjoyable, but I think it's running away from the world, right? It is meant to be escapist, and I don't think it can tell, I personally, you know, don't think it tells us much about the world in the way that, about our
0: world, the way that Delaney does. So Paco, you're telling me I I should not uh, hold my breath for a stars in my pocket like grains of sand toy line uh, that we we wouldn't sell to many of those figures. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, 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 tell us a little bit about the novel as well, too. So so take us to a, a place in the book that you love, a passage that you were really struck by, if you don't mind sharing it and just sort of explain your thoughts to it.
1: Sure. You know, I was thinking long and hard about which part of it I should read. And a lot of the passages are these amazing monologues that Mark Deeth, the, the industrial diplomat, has where he's explaining his world, right? He's explaining this amazing utopia of Velm uh, to us. Um, you know, there's some wonderful passages where he talks about poetry and translation. And the, you know, the, the has an incredibly sort of rich imagination of the poetry and the culture of these worlds, or a passage where Mark explains why his family is not really a family. They call it a stream and the difference between a family and a stream and how it's open. The stream is open to society and it's not closed in on itself the way that we think of as a family. So I was thinking about some of those favorite moments but one thing that's really wonderful about this book aside from this incredible intellectual inquiry into other lives is how it's also about the body and and really yeah, it's about sexual attraction and pleasure. And it's it's very embodied, right? It's not just focused on intellectual life. So the passage I want to read to you is um, Mark Deeth describing um, a hand, the hand of Rat Corga. So it's, it's kind of a long passage, but it'll give you a little bit of a, a taste of Delaney's um, intricate writing style. So um, and just for a little bit of context, Ratkorga is wearing this kind of these rings, this kind of ringed glove that belonged to Von Dramach Ach, who is an amazing poet and tyrant who once owned several worlds. And there's a mysterious, and she was sort of responsible for the foundation of Marteek's stream. She's this amazing figure, kind of kind of Darth Vader crossed with an incredible poet and. You know, he's wearing these rings that allow, allow Rat Corga, who is was illiterate, an illiterate slave, to have access to something like the internet and a sort of a full knowledge of all of these things. He gets through his glove, So he's describing a hand, right? This is very bodily and fleshly, as you'll see, but it also has this kind of cyborg element too, right? He's got this incredibly high-tech set of rings that he's wearing. So this is a passage marked looking at Ratkorga's hand. He lay his ringed hand on my knee. We looked at it. The flesh was thick and dry. Through my thigh hair about them, I could feel wide palm and broad fingers, unsure of their own weight, now adding a little to it, now taking a little away. I thought, it feels more like warm stone than the bone and meat-filled hide it is. I reached out two fingers. My own hands have always struck me as very ordinary, the fairly small, somewhat fleshy hands of a fairly small, somewhat hairy fellow who only uses them for manual labor one job, two out of three. Um, Job two is a designation, you know, I could give too many footnotes to this, but it's not his primary profession of industrial diplomat, but the kinds of other jobs that he does that sort of determine where he lives and that everybody on this world has. Right? One beautiful thing about this book is that we're not reduced to our work. We do different kinds of work. We have job one and we have job two, and they don't define us. So returning to the passage, you know, Mark calls himself a somewhat hairy fellow who only uses them for manual labor one job two out of three, and wonderful as I've always found nail biting in others, I've never been able to sustain the habit myself, so gave up trying long ago. I put my middle fingertip on wide copper, set around both edges with green stone chips, some opaque, some glassy, the metal between geometrically embossed. The ring one further forward bunched his broad knuckle skin before it, wrinkled as a big knot or a small brain. Spreading my fingers wide, I touched my fore forefinger tip to his forenail, side to side, twice the width of my thumb. It emerged from beneath the cuticle bank, thickened against as much gnawing as the horn, went on the distance of the paler moon, and that distance again before the support structure broke down. I cannot say was undermined because all that could be had all that could be had been and then been bitten away. For this distance again, it clutched at the quick its edges pitted so smallly and myriadly, it presented the regularity of the endlessly attacked border marked by the dirt of an unknown task. The crown rose and curved away, twice the length of the nail itself, as it did on all his fingers, thrice on thumb and little. As my fingers moved on its upper surface, the heavy crown seemed of equal hardness and clearly of greater endurance with the horn. That surface bore the swirls and lines Fainter, of course, and interrupted and scarred that below would let his fingerprint. I moved my hand, feeling the textures, copper, stone, nail, skin, and thought about the mechanics through which we locate beauty. By art, we can only do it through a disinterested precision which represses while it mimes all the interest that impels it. And we can only hope the difference between the repressed and the represented will read as intensity. His hand was beautiful.
0: Paco, that, so that so perfectly captures. You were discussing the idea of like the, the, the beautiful sort of focus on sort of intellectual, sort of intellectual thought and acquisition of, of, of knowledge and the way language is used, um, contrasted with sort of the rat korga where we first see him, the, the bodily sort of character as well, too. And that, that passage beautifully encapsulates that. And the last part that brings us to the sort of summation that, that Mark Deeth has is really beautifully stated. Uh, that's that's wonderful. Um, it, it's interesting that, that you know you talk about like the, the the levels of of sort of mythology that this world creates. And, and I must admit, I was immediately struck by the, the one that popped in my mind was something like Watership Down you know, where you have the whole sort of culture of rabbits, but then they have a whole backstory that they keep adding to. And those stories are just equally as fascinating. And I must admit, I wanted to see the poetry. I wanted to see the literature. I wanted to see all that they were processing. I was hoping that, you know, maybe Delaney's written those stories for me as well too, because it was so fascinating. So absolutely amazing. I'm I'm curious, Paco. So so Paco, why do you think, this novel matters to us today in 2021. Why do you think this is something we need to go back and revisit, you know, and, and gain from and learn from? That's such a good question. I mean, I think the novel
1: really tries to imagine what it would be like to live in a different way, right? I've mentioned some of the ways in which it does that, right? This idea that the people of Velm, the utopia in the novel, which isn't, a, it's not a perfect utopia by any means. Um, But it does clearly seem better, more tolerant, freer than our world now, right? The way that people, they're not bound by sort of the capitalist imperative to sort of have a job and reproduce them. Um, People don't have to reproduce their labor power and sell it, right? You don't have to sort of people work because they want to, they work on what they want to do. So it reimagines even at that Economic level and it reimagines so many of our institutions, right? I think I mentioned the difference between a family and a stream, and there's some really beautiful writing in this book about how, you know, the family as a structure, you know, with a head of family, um, a patriarch, or so, is it's actually sort of represented within the world of the novel as kind of the bad political tendency, like what what we know of the macro politics of this galaxy is that there are two main sort of competing ideologies. One is called the sign, S-Y-G-N, which stands for all kinds of difference and multiplicity. And the other one is called the family. And I think Delaney chooses that word family and just the idea that there is a natural structure in which some people should command others and that there should be hierarchies that the older should command the young. Um, You know, he demonstrates sort of in his evocation of this world that that's maybe not necessarily the case, right? Yeah, I think he sort of systematically takes apart a lot of the things that we take for granted, you know, having to work on sell ourselves to live Having to live in some sort of hierarchy that might be determined by biology or these other, you know, these other things that seem unthinkable to us, right? I think this world really this world is different. And in some ways it's better. And that seems like one of the hardest things to do for a couple of reasons, right? It's 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 hard for us to process. And what's so amazing about Delaney is that he's able to show us this difference. With enough similarity that we could see, you know, we could see how it's different and how it might be preferable without it feeling so alien, right? There are so many signs that the poetry, for example, that you said you wanted to hear would be too alien for us to understand. So Delaney does an incredible job of writing a kind of utopia that still feels possible in some way, right? Maybe not probable and maybe very distant, but it really, yeah, it's, it's a rich demonstration of other ways of life um, that I find really moving uh, when, I don't know, so much of the governing ideology that I was mentioning earlier really tells us that there is no other way of life, you know, that we need to live under capitalism, we need to live in some sort of patriarchy, and I'm just really moved by how Delaney is able to sort of think against that you know it's there are parts, there are some horrible parts of this galaxy that are kind of dystopian but i really have come to believe that dystopia is kind of cheap this is an idea that i really um i owe to the writer anne boyer who was tweeting about this when she was reading the sequel to the handmaid's tale she was reading margaret atwood about how dystopias they tend to make us feel you know that at least we're not in that dystopia, right? They they make us complacent. I do think that isn't to say that they can't serve some sort of purpose, but a lot of the times it's like, well, at least we don't live in Oceania, right? One of my least favorite books in the world is 1984. I don't think it tells us anything about our world. Um, Or, you know, we're not living in the Hunger Games or something, right? So at least we're not living under that. I do think that is kind of easy and that's why there's so much mass culture that is dystopian Mm -hmm. Um, i think utopia is much harder right Mm -hmm. especially plausible possible utopia of the kind that delaney is really trying to do is much much harder and you know i don't think it's his job to tell us how we get there but to keep the hope that we might get there and that it is worthwhile and possible for everyone, for all women, to use the term from the novel, right? All people with dignity to be treated as, you know, fully incommensurable, right? That we're not just cogs that can be replaced the way that I think capitalism sort of believes that we are, that it's just, you're interchangeable. Your labor power is interchangeable. Um, I think Delaney is saying every individual is a world and it would be an incredible tragedy to exploit or to enslave any individual. Right, and this novel I think shows that very powerfully without it, you know, I won't say more about the plot but it's not, it's also has this amazing story to it. It, it doesn't mean that it's not utopian the sense of just like here's a perfect little storybook and nothing will be difficult. Things are very difficult for our characters even in this utopian place and showing how they're difficult and the things that might be difficult even if we got rid of some of these structures like patriarchy or capitalism or racial prejudice the things that might still be difficult right it, it really yeah it's such a serious attempt to think about a better future a better alternative that's that's why this book means so much to me
0: i mean isn't that the purpose of literature itself right to to show us that world that it that is possible even through the pain and struggle of the stories that we know and love. And I, I do love the, the concept that you bring up in terms of dystopia. I mean, right now, you know, as you know, I teach quite a bit of, of children's fiction. I mean, that's the place that much of the children's young adult fiction is going to. And, and maybe that is the star Wars of, of of what we need to show us and engage us but it doesn't give us that full pathway of where we have to go and perhaps it takes something like this and it's interesting you know as you discuss this I, I'm having a hard time placing it in just that science fiction realm because it was so powerful and it was so moving um and and I and I certainly appreciate you sharing this with us and sharing the novel with me i, I had not read this and i too am, am saddened that uh, i don't see where the story goes at the end i would love to see that you know second other side of this beautiful piece of art that he created so, 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 Paco, thank you so very, very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. And for our listeners, please join us again in two weeks. We will chat with Lori and Matt Jones. They are high school English teachers, and they are the co-host of the Teacher Save World podcast. And uh, you've made very clear your, your position. So I'll, I'll lead us out today with may the force be with you. <laughs> thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup. Find them at Apple Music and Spotify.